Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. At this point, Moses uh, has his brother Aaron with him. Moses has lived in Egypt for 40 years, ran to the wilderness for 40 years, and now is back in Egypt. God's people, the Hebrews or the Israelites, depending on on how you wanna define them, have been in slavery in Egypt. They've been there 430-something years in slavery, probably for the last 100 or so, really intense slavery for the past maybe month, thanks to Aaron and Moses. And they've gone to Pharaoh, and they've demanded that Pharaoh let the people of God go. And you'll see here in a bit, Pharaoh kind of laughs at him, like, I don't know what you're talking about, so no, I won't let them go. And God makes some decrees about how he will set his people free from slavery in Egypt. And he says he will do it with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with mighty works of justice. And that's what we're going to study this morning. We're gonna look at the first six plagues. It's interesting. There are three groups of three plus one. For all you Bible nerds, it's the same way creation happened. Creation, days one through six are grouped into twos and then the plus one. So some scholars say this series of the plagues is actually the decreation story. It takes creation and then God almost reverses it and takes it, and you'll see this next week, all the way back to darkness, which we found in Genesis chapter one. But three groups of three plus one. Each of the triads begin with a plague in the morning at the Nile River. Plague one, plague four, and plague seven all begin in the morning at the Nile River. The second of each triad, so plague two, uh, plague five, and plague eight, all happen in Pharaoh's palace. Most scripture reads he went into Pharaoh, which means he went into his palace. And the third of each triad, plague three, Plague six and plague nine all happen without any warning. In the other plagues, God says, hey, this will happen tomorrow. This will happen soon. But these last of the triads begin without any warning at all. And the reason we're saving the three for next week is seven, eight, and nine are all plagues directed specifically at Pharaoh himself. And so there's a whole other thing I wanna study together next week. But these plagues are a direct response. There's two reasons why God uses the plagues. And the first is to answer a question that Pharaoh had asked Moses and Aaron in Exodus 5. They stand before Moses, ask him to, or ask him, demand him to let God's people go a three days journey into the wilderness that, he might, that they might worship Yahweh, the one true God. But Exodus 5, verse one, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. Now, this word Lord, we've talked about it in length, is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means I am that I am. Or whatever I am, I will always be. This is in contrast to another Hebrew word for God, which is the word Elohim. Elohim is a generic title, a God, God. Lord, Yahweh, is the name of our Elohim, the one true God. That's the distinction. So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has said, let my people go. They may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse two, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Never heard of him. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? 
I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's basic question is, well, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Why him? And truthfully, this is a question we all should be asking. If God demands obedience, what we should be asking is, well, who is this God that demands my obedience? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's a fair question to ask. Before we obey anyone, we should know who they are and the intent that they have behind our obedience. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Okay, so that's the first thing that God is addressing. There's an understanding underneath all of this that there are other false gods, small g gods. I don't say false like fake or imaginary. I mean, they don't measure up. There are other gods in the land of Egypt. And in fact, every one of these 10 plagues is an attack on those gods of Egypt. And God is intentional about it. There are gods that they worship in Egypt, 40 of them or so. God chooses at least 10 of them, some kind of blend together. And in fact, Egypt had official national gods that they would worship. Pharaoh himself was considered a god. So what the Lord, Yahweh, is doing in the plagues is that he's letting the Egyptians and the Israelites know there is no other god before me. I'm it. I'm the greatest and the best there ever was. I'm stronger than, mightier than, more powerful than, more compassionate than. I'm the creator God and you should be worshiping me. This is the statement he makes. He is the one true God. And we know that because in Exodus chapter 12, so after all of these things happen, God says in verse 12, speaking of the plague of the firstborn, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods, Elohims of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I mean, come on. How, how bad is that right there? Like that's, come on, I'm watching that movie. I am Yahweh is the statement he makes in Exodus 12, 12. So we're gonna cover these first six plagues uh, this morning. On the screen will come up a QR code. We're gonna walk through these. If you wanna scan that, I encourage you to. It's, gonna, it's portions of our study guide that you can have right to your phone. You can do it right now. It's gonna list the 10 gods, gonna give you all 10 plagues, the correlation of the 10 Egyptian gods, and it's gonna show you kind of what God is intending to do. So I would encourage you, if you have a smartphone, uh, to go ahead and do that. You can download it right to your phone. We're gonna walk through it on the screen, but this would be helpful for you to have. And so if you wanna scan that, it should just download straight to your phone. It'll say the 10 plagues once it comes up. I wanna walk through six of them this morning. And from these six, then, we're gonna get an understanding of these gods that the Egyptians have worshiped. And what I wanna do first, I wanna take our 21st minds, 21st century minds, back into an understanding of truth. We think we're so developed now in the 21st century that all the things they used to believe about myths were just myths, and I can't believe how dumb those crazy old Israelites were and Egyptians were. I, I would caution you to approach that with humility. In fact, I believe the very work of the enemy has been to deceive us that there are no powers of evil in the spiritual places. And in doing so, we've been slowly hook, line, and sinkered into the work of the enemy, and we don't even know it. 
So these plagues all correlate to these Egyptian gods. Plague one, God uses the staff of Moses that turned into a snake, not the Tanin, chaos monster, but into a snake. And Moses strikes the, the Nile River and it all turns to blood. Turns to blood. Then Aaron takes his staff, and I'm not exactly sure what he does with it, but he does something with the staff and then even the water that had been drawn out of the Nile that's in cisterns and pots in people's homes turns to blood. I mean, chaos ensues. The Nile River was the source of life for all the Egyptians. They didn't depend on rain because they have the Nile. They have the Nile that provides everything they need. It's the source of life. It is the lifeblood, the vein for, or the main artery for the people of Egypt. So in this first plague, God strikes the Nile with blood. All the water turns to blood. It gets so bad that the people then begin, start to be, try to dig wells close to the Nile to get under the blood and into fresh water, and they're able to. And this plague lasts for uh, seven days. What's interesting is that it happens, again, in the morning at the Nile. And if you're paying attention, there's a reason God is putting blood in the Nile, isn't there? Because back in Exodus chapter three, Pharaoh himself said, let's kill the babies by throwing them in the Nile, as if to say, this blood is on your hand, Pharaoh. The blood in the Nile is because of you. So it lasts for about seven days and God's attacking these false Egyptian gods. This is Exodus 7, 14 through 25. But what's funny is like what just happened with the sorcerers and magicians who use uh, their evil dark arts, secret arts, to create more chaos monsters. God makes the water turn into blood and the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, do the same thing. I'd fire them right there. I'm not asking for more blood. I need you to fix the problem. Don't make it worse. But they create more blood as if to prove, well, if God can do that, so can I. So this happens. They create more chaos in the land. Happens, uh, goes on for seven. Seven days later, we get to plague number two. This is the plague of the frogs. This is a funny, funny part. Uh, Moses is telling Pharaoh, hey, listen, if you don't let my people go, I'm gonna send a plague of frogs. And then he begins to tell Pharaoh where the frogs will be in Exodus chapter eight. It's funny how he says it. He says, the Nile will swarm with frogs that come up into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Moses is saying, there's gonna be frogs everywhere. And so God sends the frogs. This is an attack on the Egyptian god Heket, who was the frog goddess. The Egyptians worshiped frogs because frogs can make a lot of little frog babies really fast. And so if, if you wanted a child, you sacrificed to the Egyptian god Heket that he might or she might grant you fertility in your own home. So God is attacking them. And again, the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians just make more frogs. They don't do away with the frogs, they just add more frogs. And if you're paying attention, that's kind of how evil works, isn't it? Evil promises to fix the situation, but all evil does is add to the problem in your life. It sells you a solution, but then you are left holding the receipt to more chaos. This is what's happening 
in the second plague. Because the Egyptians worshiped the frogs, they refused to kill them. And so God killed them. Plagues one and two, we read at the end of each plague, it says the land stunk or stank, depending on where you're from. This is the second plague. Plague number three, God sends the plague of the gnats. Some of your translations say lice. It doesn't matter to me. They're both gross. I don't care. They're both awful, small, little, tiny, annoying bugs. We were, from, we were in Savannah for a number of years, and there were sand gnats there. Anybody familiar with sand gnats? We call them no see because you can't see them. Gosh, you feel them. They're worse on the baseball field. So God uh, sends gnats. This is without warning to Pharaoh. Aaron hits his staff on the dust of the ground, and the dust of the ground turns into gnats everywhere. There were gnats everywhere. The Egyptians prided themselves on their lives of comfort and ease. I don't know if you've ever tried to go on your back porch maybe and have dinner because you want a life of comfort and ease, and then God sends the gnats. Does that happen to you? Is that comfortable? You enjoy that? Now, this is the first plague the Egyptian sorcerers tried to duplicate, which again is ridiculous. Just fix the problem. But they, they tried to add to it, and they cannot do it. And they make this statement to Pharaoh, hey, we can't do it. This surely must be the finger of, Elo, of an Elohim. This must be the finger of a God. So we'll get to that more later. The plague, the fourth plague is the plague of the flies, which I'm not sure is worse, gnats, lice, or flies. But God sends the flies in Exodus 8, verses 20 through 32. This is the Egyptian god, Yuachit, who is the fly god. Pretty fly, really, if you ask me. Uh, but this, this god is the god of really insects or bugs. Yuachit was the keeper, the guardian of the Nile. And she would use any kind of insect or bug to protect the Nile River. This is the idea here. And again, this happens at the Nile in the morning. Plague four is the first time God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. Plagues one through three affected both of them, both the Egyptians and the Hebrews or Israelites. Plague four is the first time it doesn't affect those in the land of Goshen, which is where the Israelites were living at the time. So at this point, now Pharaoh is getting annoyed by all of it. His magicians can't prove themselves. And so Pharaoh offers a compromise. He says, okay, you want to go worship three days journey away. How about this? How about I let you worship, but you just stay right here and worship? How about to make all this go away, you just worship here? And Moses, who was apparently growing in his boldness and confidence, says, that's not gonna work, buddy. God wants us to go three days journey. And I don't know why, but we're gonna have to do that. I can't take your deal. Well, then Pharaoh comes back and says, okay, all right, well, then I'll let you go, but three days journey is way too far away. I just don't go very far out of the land of Egypt. And again, Moses says, no, I can't, can't do it. Exodus 8, 24 tells us the land of Egypt was ruined because of the flies. And again, the Egyptian sorcerers could not duplicate plague four. Plague five is diseased livestock. Exodus 9, one through seven this is an attack on the Egyptian gods, Hathor and Apis, and they were the cattle gods. The cattle gods uh, were the ones who protected the wealth of Egypt. This is all about wealth and security. 
And again, this one happens in Pharaoh's palace. The livestock, horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks are all diseased and destroyed. Nothing left to eat, nothing left to sell, destroyed. And again, in Plague 5, there's a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, and the Egyptian sorcerers could not duplicate this plague. The sixth plague is a fun one. This is boils. This happens in Exodus 9, verses 8 through 12. And again, in this one, this is interesting, it's in Pharaoh's palace. God tells Aaron, I want you to take the soot that's on the ground. Have you ever seen LeBron James before basketball games? LeBron goes to the scorer's table and he dumps out, I don't know, $7 worth of baby powder on the table because he can do that. And he grabs it and because he's just so awesome, he uh, throws it up in the air like it's just, I I don't know why he does it. Why? I don't know, but he does it. People think it's cool. And so he does that. Uh, This is what happens here. Aaron grabs soot and he LeBron James it up into the air. But the difference is this soot then gets carried by the wind and begins to land on everyone. And as it lands on people, it turns into boils. I'm not saying LeBron is evil. I'm just saying this is what happened here. And so you can make the correlation if you need to. I know Michael Jordan would never do that, never. So the boils come and it affects uh, just everyone. Now, most scholars would tell you the distinction is continuing now at this point, so it probably doesn't affect the Israelites here with the plague of the boils. Verse 11 of Exodus 9, because of the boils, the magicians could no longer stand before Pharaoh, so they leave, which then leaves Pharaoh exposed for plagues 7 through 10. Fascinating. Like if you're watching this on a screen, something happens here in this plague of the boils in Exodus chapter six. So I say all that to say this. God will not put up with other gods. He doesn't play around with our worship. And he continues because you think after all of this, the Israelites would have learned how great God is and they would never worship another God again. But while the plagues are meant to get Egypt or get Israel out of Egypt, the wilderness is meant to get the Egypt out of Israel. We'll see in their journey in the 40 years in the wilderness, they continue to worship false gods because for 430 years, this had kind of gotten into their bloodstream and they didn't even know it. In fact, in Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the 10 commandments, he reminds them, I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or it's on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your Elohim, am a jealous Elohim. I'm jealous about your worship. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Verse six, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He makes a promise to them before they enter into the promised land. If you continue to worship Yahweh, me, the one true God, you will find life and blessing. But should you turn your hearts to other gods, to false gods of the nations in Canaan, you will find nothing but death and exile. 
That's a promise. As long as you worship me, you're gonna find it. But turn your hearts to the false gods and all that they can deliver to you is death and exile. Well, things don't go so well for them. And in Deuteronomy, as they're on the edge of the Jordan about to cross into the, into the promised land, Moses writes a song and sings it to them. And in this song, in verse 15, he says, Jeshurun, which is another word for Israel. Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. I don't know how you're stout and sleek, but he, maybe they're alignment, I don't know. But he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They, Israel, stirred him, God, to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, circle that, that were no gods and to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. God is serious about our worship and he will not put up with the false gods that we worship. And again, before we begin to think we're so advanced, we don't believe in all this God mumbo jumbo, let me direct your attention to the New Testament, Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I say all that to say this. There are still false gods that we worship today. And the sad thing about the West is that we don't even realize it. We have given our hearts and allegiances, not just to ideas, not just to some ideology, not to some theory, not to some, uh, something that we think is kind of ethereal. We've given our hearts, we've given our allegiances, we've given our hands and our feet and our minds to demonic forces of evil. And every act of sin is connected back to a false God who wants our affection. And our God, our Yahweh, who is a jealous God, will not stand for our worship of a false God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Behind every false teaching, behind every um, political advance is a power of darkness behind it. Now, the Egyptians were polytheists, meaning that they had multiple gods. So they were okay with people worshiping other gods. That wasn't an issue to them. Like they understood everybody has their own kind of God and whatever's true to them is true to them. And I know it sounds far-fetched, people believe that, but they did believe it back then. And so they defined their own truth and all, that, all those kinds of things. And so they were fine. You saw it with Pharaoh. Pharaoh was fine with the Israelites worshiping their God inside of his own constraints. But should another God get in the way of how they want to live their life, they weren't gonna be okay with it. They were polytheists in that they understood and believed there were other gods out there. But the moment your God interfered with me, your God no longer counted. And we see that here. He's gonna let them worship in, in Egypt, but he's not gonna let them take 
take the whole workforce with them out into the wilderness for three days. As long as it doesn't disrupt their daily lives and the culture they had built, they'd be fine. And so they weren't asking anyone to choose one God over the other. And this is where we find ourselves. The technical term is syncretism. Syncretism is the active blending of multiple beliefs. We syncretize our beliefs. So we like this from Buddhism, so we're gonna keep it. We like this from the Muslim faith. We like, uh, we like this from the Jehovah's Witness. We like this part of the atheist ideas and religion. But no, 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 but, but we love God. And so what we'll do is we craft a God based on the pieces that we have assembled together. And what happens over time is that we no longer know what God is like. We just know a God of our own imagination. I think in the West, in America, our struggle is not that we choose another God over our God. It is that we choose another God and our God. We're far too advanced to say that we worship a sun God or a goddess of fertility. We're far too Christian in the South to say that we believe that to be true but I think our struggle is that we choose false gods to worship along with our one true God. And over time, we begin to make our one true God into something that he is not at all. And we make our one true God the God of fertility. We make the one true God the God of sex and success and comfort. So what false gods do we worship? Well, for many of us, we've made our husbands or our wives a God to us. They're good people, and they're really good at being your husband, but he is a terrible God. Our shoulders were never meant to bear the responsibility of godliness. I think we worship our children. Our calendars and our bank accounts revolve around our children. And if they have something going on, and the church has something going on, we're gonna choose what the children have going on over what God has going on. I think we choose the false God of patriotism over the one true God. And we love America more than we love the God of the Bible. I think we choose social justice over the one true God. I think we choose comfort and sex and success over the one true God. And maybe not over, but we try to align ourselves. And so we begin to say things like we're a Christian nation. And we begin to alter or to worship at the altar of our political party. We begin to say things that, well, God wouldn't want me to struggle. And we begin to worship at the altar of comfort. We believe that God wouldn't want us to be poor. And so we worship at the altar of financial success. Sure, all while coming to church and saying, our God is greater, our God is stronger. And yet we find ourselves syncretizing the one true God and he morphs into something that we don't even recognize anymore. But the truth of scripture is that God is serious about our worship. These aren't hobbies or innocent interests. 
This is worship connected to a dark, evil, spiritual world that's robbing us of any joy and flourishing. And God will not stand for it. He is a jealous God. It's not just that, well, our kids love travel ball. It's not just that, well, I don't wanna be single. It's not just that, well, I just scroll social media a few hours at a time. It's not just that we're obsessed with a politician and their successes or their failures. It's that we have aligned our hearts with the powers of evil. Joshua chapter seven, the people of God have gone into the promised land and what they were told in the promised land is conquer everyone, drive all the other nations out. Don't leave any hint of their gods in the land. And those Israelites were so much better than them, but they refused to drive out all the gods. And so over time, they begin to adopt practices that are unbecoming of God. They begin to adopt the practices of Baal worship and Ashtaroth worship. And they find themselves in a place now, in Judges chapter 11 and 12, where they are offering child sacrifices to Yahweh as if that's what he wants. They had reached a point in the period of Judges where they no longer knew the character of God and no longer knew what he actually wanted. And we can laugh and scoff, but the truth is we do the same thing today. And so we're all for our church attendance and our pithy worship and we'll pretend to read the Bible and we'll check all the boxes as if God is demanding those things of us and God says, if I wanted a burnt offering, I would get it from you. But Psalm 51, David says, if that's what you wanted, I'd give it to you, but I know you want a contrite, a broken and a contrite heart. And the truth is we're not willing to give God that. So give us any other boxes to check and we'll do it. But I can't give you that. Joshua chapter seven, it got so bad, they, they conquer a land. And I'm gonna read this to you. They, instead of destroying everything God said to destroy, they, they keep some things. A man named Achan keeps some things for himself. Joshua 7, verse 7. Joshua said, Sovereign Lord, Yahweh, why did you bring us across the Jordan at all? Why did you give us this land? Things have gotten really bad for the people of God. They have conquered, but now they're being conquered over and over and over again. They're having to surrender to other nations. Do you bring us here to turn us over to the Amorites? Do you bring us here to destroy us? Why didn't we just stay on the other side of the Jordan? This is the leader, Joshua. What can I say, O Lord, now that Israel has retreated from the enemy? The Canaanites and everyone else in the country will hear about it. They will surround us and kill every one of us. And then what will you do to protect your honor? I'll say a lot of things to God. I'm nervous to say that one. And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on the ground like this? Israel has sinned. They broke the agreement with me that I ordered them to keep. They have taken some of the things condemned to destruction. They stole them. They lied about it. And then watch this. They put them with their own things. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They retreat from them because they themselves have now been condemned to destruction. I will not stay with you any longer unless you destroyed the things you were ordered not to take. Get up. Purify the people and get them ready to come before me. Tell them to be ready tomorrow because I, Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, have this to say. Israel, 
you have in your possession some things that I ordered you to destroy. And you cannot stand against your enemies until you, get, until you get rid of these things. Church, you have some things in your hearts that God has commanded you to destroy. And you will not overcome the enemy until you kill those things. You wanna know why we can't make it? You wanna know why uh, the Christian faith is struggling in America? It's not because God's not able, it's because we have adopted, we've syncretized with the ways of the world. That's why. And I'm no Bible-thumping legalist up here either. I'm just telling you the truth. You wanna know why you're afraid to send your kids to public school? Because we have taken things and, uh, from the world and have put them along with our things. That's why. It's not because God is enabled. And God says the same thing to us. Get up. Why are you laying there? Get up. So the question begs to be answered. How can we know then if we've given our heart to another God? Well, I wanna show you from Exodus 8 how we know. Let's go to Exodus 8, verse 8 through 15. How do you know? Well, you know you've given your heart to another God when you abuse the grace that God has given you. Exodus 8, verse eight. During the plague of the frogs, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, please plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. You see, Pharaoh comes to Moses, just make it stop. Make the pain stop, make the poverty stop, make it all stop. Make the marriage problems stop, make it all stop. And Moses says to Pharaoh, well, be pleased to command me when I'm to plead for you and your servants and for your people that the frogs will be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Does it make you wonder why he didn't just say right now? Like now would be good. Is it because he thought he could solve the problem? Just give me 12 more hours, I'll fix it. Is it because he actually liked the chaos? So you get convicted on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or when you're reading the word and God says now, and you're like, how about tomorrow? Well, how do you know you worshiped another God? We, we abuse the grace of God in that way and then we continue. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Yahweh, our Elohim. The frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile." So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs and he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I wonder how many times we've cried out to God to save us, to rescue us from some kind of situation, to deliver finances, a relationship, or a job, and we're pleading with him, and we're so close to him, and then God does. There's a respite, and then our hearts are hardened, and we run from the grace of God. I mean, each and every one of us in the room today, because, yeah, there was a season when I cried out to God, and he heard me, and I wish I could go back to being that close to him. Well, then why don't we? because we think we did it. Well, it's because I prayed so much. It's because I finally got out of that relationship. 
How do you know you're worshiping a false God? When you take advantage of the grace of God. When you abuse the grace of our God. Secondly, how do we know if we've given our heart to another? When we diminish the role of God? Look at verses 18 through 19 in Exodus 8. Sorcerers are trying, verse eight, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, which is just a weird thing. But they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, which feels like an admission. Until you recognize what they're saying is, this is the finger of an Elohim, of a God. This is some God. This is some kind of power. We've given our hearts to another God when we diminish the role of our God. We start to say things like, yeah, but it's because I. I mean, yes, some power did it. Or you get out of debt, and it's not because God got you out of debt, but because Dave Ramsey got you out of debt. We know we've given our hearts to other gods and we abuse the grace of God, we diminish the role of God, and when we make concessions. Exodus 8 Verse 25, after the plague of the flies, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. I'll let you as long as. Verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. How do you know you've given your heart to another God when you start to make concessions about your God in favor of the other God? Well, I'll... I'll worship God as long as it doesn't affect this. I'll, I'll give you everything I have, except for. I'll worship you no matter what you decide, unless you decide this thing that I don't want you to decide. Well, I mean, come on, I can worship God on the golf course. I can worship him on the lake. It's just, it's just one it's just one website. It's just one app. It's just one conversation. We begin to make concessions. We begin to worship other gods over the one true God. So then what do we do? First, we have to recognize you can't have two gods. Jesus is clear in Matthew chapter six. You cannot be a slave of two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be loyal to one and despise the other. First, you have to recognize you can't have your cake and eat it too. Whatever false God you're worshiping, at some point your allegiance has got to go to one or the other. Because the Yahweh God of creation will always step on the toes of the God of our own making. And at some point, you're gonna have to make a choice. Is it the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the one true God, or is it the God of your comfort or the God of your patriotism or the God of your social justice or the God of your education or the God of your family or the God of your sports? Which one is it? So the first thing you have to do is recognize you can't have both. Secondly, you have to choose to kill the false gods. You can't let them linger. Joshua 24, it's the end of Joshua's life. 
He's done all he can. He's made his own mistakes, but it's the end of his life. And they haven't finished yet wiping out the evil from the land of Canaan. Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, Therefore, to the people of God, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away, do away with, destroy the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, well, then choose this day whom you will serve. You wanna serve the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? You choose. You wanna, you wanna serve and worship the God of sports and the God of school and the God of fertility? You wanna serve and worship the God of spouse and children? You wanna serve and worship the God of finances and uh, success? You wanna serve and worship the God of your comfort? You wanna serve and worship the God of your patriotism and political party? Just choose one. But then he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve and worship Yahweh. And later in verse 23, he says, and then put away, oh, they come back to him and say, fine, we're gonna serve the one true God. And Joshua says, I need you to understand what you're saying. What you're saying is you're doing away with every other false God. It's gonna cost you something. And he says, you are your own witness to this now. Joshua says, you decided it. And he comes back and says, if that's what you want, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. So maybe today, man, prayerfully today, the Lord has exposed some false gods in your own heart and life. And maybe prayerfully you're embarrassed by it. And maybe what you're recognizing is you uh, have tried to worship the one true God and your other gods. And what's happened is you are so disfigured in your understanding of who God is. You don't even know what God wants anymore. And you've been pleading, whatever, whatever you need, whatever it takes, and you're pleading with him. And maybe you've gotten to the place the Israelites got in the time of the judges. You're like, is it, you want a child? What do you want? And the whole time God's saying, no, 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 I just want your broken heart, that's it. Just a contrite heart is what I desire. I mean, I'm, I'm praying that the Lord and the power of his spirit today is setting us free from that today. The great Puritan preacher, John Owen, asked this question. Do you mortify? Do you kill? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live and cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The false gods are relentless in the pursuit of our hearts. And to make some decision at summer camp when you were 15 isn't gonna cut it. And to make some decision when you finally got married and had kids, we're gonna get back in church, isn't going to cut it. This is a daily exercise. Choose this day whom you will serve. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This study for me has been a convicting journey through the worship of gods I thought I had done away with. 
only to recognize that there still linger, the residue is still there in my heart. So listen, I'm, I'm giving you a way through the gospel to get past the confusing syncretism in your heart and the way that you've lost sight of who God actually is. And many of us at the point, because we've so disfigured God in our minds that we're about to give up on him. I would just argue with you, are you giving up on the one true God or the God of your own making? Scripture is pretty clear that once you have tasted and seen the goodness of God, you don't turn away from it. Once you've seen Yahweh, the one true God, we don't run away. So maybe today there are false gods in your heart. And you've thought, well, it's just a hobby. It's just something I do when uh, my kids are gone. It's just maybe. But I would argue with you who's pulling the strings on those things. I would imagine it's the powers of darkness. And the beauty of the cross is that God disarmed, through Jesus, he disarmed the powers and authorities in the heavenly places. He disarmed them. They have no power over you unless you give them that power, if you're a follower of Jesus. So Mallory's gonna play. I'm gonna pray. And I, I just don't think it's enough to just sit in your seat and say something in your mind today. I think we're gonna have to go to war against the false gods in our hearts. So an altar is a place of that. It's a place to destroy things, to kill things. So maybe today you need to come to the altar. You gotta do some work in your own heart because your girlfriend's become an idol. She's become a false god to you. And you worship at the altar of her or a husband or a spouse or a job or your finances. And maybe by God's grace, your life has been spun into chaos, that he might awaken you to the fact that you have lost sight of who he is. So I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna invite you to the altar to mortify that which is killing you. God, today, we are a people who are prone to wander. And if we're being honest, there are seasons of life in which it feels like you aren't doing the things we want you to do. And the temptation then in those moments is that the devil gets a foothold and we begin to veer into the land of a false worship of a false God. And for some of us this morning, it's gone far enough and we need to kill it. We need to put a bullet in it. We need to cut its head off. We need to kill it. We've played with it long enough. And we see the chaos it's caused in our family. We see the damage it's created for our kids. We see the damage it's created in our community, in our workplace. And while we've been able to excuse it away and blame it on other people, God, at the end of the day today, God, through the power of your conviction, you've revealed to us, it's not them, it's me. So God, before the foothold before the enemy gets a foothold any deeper in our hearts, God, we have to kill this sin today. And we know that no matter how far in we are, there's no one like you. 
You're greater and stronger and higher than any other. And there's no God, no false God that stands a chance against the creator of all things. So God, would you set us free today from the slavery of false worship? Deliver us from the dominion of darkness. Open our eyes to what's really going on. Pull back the curtain. That we might know you more and better than we ever have. And that if we lose it all and only have you, that that would be enough. Give us that heart. Give us that mind today. Set us free. We worship you, the one true God who made heaven and earth, the Yahweh who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the Yahweh who created everything by just the sound of his voice, and the Yahweh who intricately wove us together in our mother's womb. That's who we worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.